Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to be speaking with Ryan Stinger Fischel, who's an F-15E pilot for United States Air Force. Ryan, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks for having me. So you got a quick disclaimer to present with us? Yep. So uh, everything I'm about to say are just my personal views and uh, does not in any way, shape, or form reflect the DOD or the Air Force. Great. I'd like to start out here by discussing DARPA's Alpha Dogfight, which has been grabbing a lot of attention recently. I'd just like you to explain, you know, from your operational perspective, what was exactly happening there? And then what do you think that signals about the future? Okay, so there was a lot of press about that. And just to recap, it was a DARPA program for software developers to compete with their algorithms against one another. Uh, And then ultimately a human pilot in a simulated world of BFM or basic fighter maneuvers, also known as dogfighting. And if I remember this right, it was part of a broader program called Air Combat Evolution from DARPA that served as an entry point for complex human-machine collaboration with artificial intelligence. BFM was a great entry point. And then uh, BFM can roughly be described as uh, like a one-on-one aerial engagement in a visual arena. For fighter pilots, it's kind of the oldest combat skill set going back to World War One. It's a challenge of energy management and weapon engagement zone recognition, uh, all while maneuvering in relation to your opponent or the bandit, as we would say. Much easier said than done. And uh, you could say it's kind of like knife fighting on a high-speed merry-go-round. Uh, but to answer your question, I think... The Alpha Dogfight Challenge really signaled a gathering of software developers to form an industrial base where we can kind of integrate that with complex human-machine collaboration in a tactical environment. So when I think about the dogfight and artificial intelligence in general, I tend to be a strong believer in weak AI, or what is sometimes called narrow AI, but then I'm also a weak believer in strong AI, or general artificial intelligence. So do you agree with that view? When I think about fighter activity, for example, it seems like you have a lot of missions and things that you need to accomplish, and you need to be able to move between a range of tasks that might not be able to be tackled by narrow AI itself. And DARPA, of course, was just doing this little dogfight. So can you describe, how do you think about artificial intelligence doing the range of stuff that you'd be doing as a fighter pilot? I'm with you. For fighter aircraft, uh, within the spectrum of realistic warfare, uh, I think there's technical tasks, there's uh, tactical problems, and then what I would call wartime framework or context. The technical tasks may be uh, something like optimizing your aircraft's performance or or even finding your opponent. Uh, You can find your opponent visually uh, by looking outside, or you can do it with various systems such as a, a radar or other sensors that you have. The idea there is that you can kind of tell a system what to do and it'll do it. And then you can kind of manage it, manage how it does it. Uh, and then that allows you to devote more brain power to managing the tactical tasks. Uh, the tactical tasks, and I'm kind of just making up that term, but uh, they're tasks that involve a feedback process with an opponent. And uh, it's understanding what they're doing in relation to what you're doing. In BFM, uh, one of the three commandments is maneuver in relation to the bandit. And then that's kind of going back to, to John Boyd's OODA loop and just managing what you're doing vis-a-vis an opponent. But uh, with those technical tasks and with the tactical tasks, I think narrow AIs can be hugely beneficial and it could automate the technical tasks and then maybe offer solutions or possibility to the tactical portion of it. One of the things that I can see it doing in in that realm really is synergizing existing information to the operator and then or retrieving information that you may not remember or even consider relevant. Those bits of information that may seem trivial to you uh, at one time could offer a way to exploit weakness or ensure mission success. Now, having said all that, I think no matter what anyone will tell you, tactics are not really scientific. I think they're a little bit more of an art form. uh, And then that's probably debatable in some cases. But I think they they come from understanding broader context, uh, your own weakness, and then what the enemy potential is. And the latter is the really hard part. As much as Intel or intelligence tries to, and we're talking about military intelligence there, uh, tries to, the possibility exists that they may not, you know, accurately be able to assess uh, what an opponent is capable of. And I mean, your 
opponents probably have their own secrets and stuff. In any case, uh, this is why the Alpha Dogfight Challenge, I think, was a good entry point, but not necessarily the final answer. In combat, there's a lot that is unknown, and historically, that's been the case, uh, no matter how much technology you have or what you believe you know. And the real challenge, in that challenge particularly, was that each uh, AI algorithm knew those variables that you may not know in combat, you know, uh, an opponent's performance or intentions even. And the third thing I mentioned, that wartime framework is important. I think not all conflict has clear-cut opponents, and your end policy goal may not be congruent with specific tactics that you would use or specific tactics that make sense. But with that said, I think strong AI might not be in a position to identify those escalation pathways in that whole entire realm. Now, I mean, it could, depending on what kind of information that you're feeding it, and then uh, if it really has a more holistic approach to learning. You know, the way I think about it, I guess, is you can move to a model where you have more single mission disaggregated systems. So they're kind of doing one or just a couple of things. And maybe you can just get narrow AI to do that, that narrow set of things. And then that, I kind of temper that with the idea of, well, you release something to go do a mission. And then a lot of times the battlefield can be pretty fraught with uncertainty and you're kind of confronted with things that are, are not like, you know, there's a nice database or data bank for you to go search and use to optimize your algorithms. So there might be decision challenges, I guess, and escalation might be one of those that's difficult. So can you talk about the difficulty of, of the uncertainty regarding the battlefield and making decisions and, and whether, you know, some of that can be automated or how much can be automated versus how much needs to be retained with like a human? So when I think of the complex decisions that AI has to make, one of the things that comes to mind is managing a complex ROE or, or rules of engagement. So each theater of operations and every opponent is tangled in this web of political nuances that affect you know, overall narrative and perception uh, and then a strategic direction of uh, where you're going overall. And since war is about policy, and some would even say war is policy by other means, or by other means, depending on how good your Russian interpretation is, I think those specific nuances sometimes don't really make sense in a tactical environment where it's uh, zeros or ones applied to a specific situation, unless you have a really good working knowledge of diplomacy and, and the policy levers that have already been pulled. So integrating all that into this artificial intelligence, I think, is a little easier said than done. There's, uh, I think we ran into this a little bit in Syria as well, where you have uh, multiple actors or strategic audiences, if you want to call them that, that were non-hostile, uh, but they had competing interests in the region. And we were focused on a single mission, which was defeating ISIS at the time. How do you interact with all those peripheral players? How do you manage escalation? How do you identify escalation paths? And uh, like that complex ROE we were talking with, once you get to a tactical decision making, so AI still probably has a has a ways a ways to go with that. However, I think we're hopefully generally trending in the in the direction to be able to start solving complex problems. And I feel like that DARPA Alpha Dogfight Challenge was kind of stepping into that pool of complex decision making, if you will. You know, one of the things that I heard from Esper recently was that he actually was targeting 2023 for the first actual uh, dogfight in person rather than simulation. Do you think that's a long time off or do you think that's about right? And there's a lot of, you know, things that might need to happen to get that actually working in, in, in a real in combat environment rather than simulated. I mean, that is a pretty big goal. If it's an actual, you know, AI fighter fly off, um, 2023 is, is coming up pretty soon. I'm a little skeptical, but uh, I've seen, the Air Force be able to do amazing things pretty quickly. I think we all we all just saw that. And so I think it could be a realistic goal. I don't really know what's going on behind the curtain, and I got my fingers crossed. But, I mean, there are a lot of roadblocks or a lot of challenges that they're going to have to overcome to be able to actually make that happen. So three years may not may not be that long. Who, who knows? We'll see. <laughs> yeah, so you mentioned that, you know, we've been seeing some things kind of moving pretty fast. And I was actually pretty caught off guard recently, a few days ago, when the Air Force kind of announced that they built a new demonstrator as part of the Next Generation Air Dominance Program. And I've been just kind of thinking with the NGAD program, you know, they wanted to do this. I thought they were just kind of like subsystem prototyping and different types of concepts, but they already kind of got a demonstrator out. And some people are kind of writing that off and they're like, oh, it's just a demonstrator. It's not even at the level of a prototype, let alone like 
a full-scale development system that you're going to go into production eventually with. But still, they, they were able to get a new fighter out <laughs> pretty rapidly, and so that's impressive. So do you have any like hot takes, I guess, on this demonstrator program? What, do you, what are your thoughts on the program and, and the ability to get a new fighter out that quickly? Well, I think that's a great question. <laughs> I know we talked about NGAD a little bit before, and I think we were probably both hopeful but skeptical maybe uh, about what could happen. I think it's awesome. Uh, Will Roper, Dr. Roper, I think it's a huge win for the Air Force overall in terms of just uh, getting stuff done. And then, uh, you know, ideas are great. And a lot of people have them, but marrying up those ideas to a physical product is a lot easier said than done, especially in the DOD. And uh, I mean, how many offices does a program or record have to go through before it gets a holy blessing, right? <laughs> yeah. And I think he has more of this entrepreneurial mindset where you can just kind of go fast, make it happen. Uh, and that really isn't especially common in an organization that's core values, mitigating risk uh, for the most part. But but, but I think we're, we're seeing a general trend in that direction of people who, who can take risk and, and, and kind of move along. Um, I'm not an expert in the program, so I can't really speak intelligently, but from my understanding, uh, what it is is really a portfolio of systems that can be iteratively developed uh, and then integrated into uh, existing platforms as well as uh, a new platform. I think that he's experimenting with a couple different types of ways to manufacture uh, and actually get hardware prototypes faster and then do like a software development uh, development very iteratively. I'm pretty excited to see it in real life. Uh, I haven't yet. <laughs> I'm pretty excited to see it. So I, that's probably the, the limit of what I know and what I can share about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, we've talked about this before about, you know, how these faster, more iterative development cycles, they seem to make sense. You're able to actually have that knock-on effect, like what you're talking about with the defense industry, where you're kind of having a disaggregated portfolio of systems, which, you know, might lead to sales and employment stabilizations that you don't have this one big thing winner take all kind of contract going on so can you just like riff on what you think are the industrial base implications of the ngad model if it kind of scales through you know the air force and potentially the navy uh or, or the navy actually has an ngad program i'm not really sure what's coming out of there though great question eric uh you know Rand did a study back in 2000 for uh, in response to congressional concerns about a stagnating military aviation industry and they noticed that there was a trend towards consolidation and a decreasing ability of prime aerospace contractors to be competitive and innovative. So Rand looked into the nature of the combat uh, aircraft industry and what were the primary drivers of innovation and technological progress. And, and they also explored what options there were to kind of revive and then guide the industry forward. The first thing they found, which I thought was really cool was that the most revolutionary changes in aircraft technology, kind of things like uh, dramatically forward in propulsion, low observability, uh, were directly related to the number of competitors present. So basically what they found is the more uh, revolutionary changes uh, that there were, uh, were caused by more competitors uh, in the um, aerospace industry. The second thing that they found was that the most revolutionary innovation rarely came from dominant players in the industry. More often than not, huge leaps forward came from you know, second-tier competitors trying to make a name for themselves. I mean, Lockheed wasn't even making fighters anymore when they stumbled upon stealth. And also interesting was that the stealth, something that had huge implications for future fighter technology, didn't even come from a formal requirement. So I thought that was interesting as well. And, and I'll bring this up now, and although some might consider it heresy in my career field, but uh, when the F-15EX first made news as a potential Air Force purchase, it created a ton of debates and tribal wars within the Air Force. Uh, most of those debates were focused on what jet could carry more missiles or bombs, which could go faster, which cost more. Sadly, I think many seem to miss the big picture there. And that was that the industry was uh, stagnating. On one hand, you have a marginally improved version of a fighter that had its first flight in uh, 1972, you know, approximately 48 years ago. The other fighter, the F-35, originally came from a stealth VTOL requirement in the 1980s as a follow-on for the Marine Corps Harrier. And then it evolved uh, as a cost-saving good idea, uh, the Joint Advanced Strike Technology JAS program, which I thought again, was interesting. Uh, the JAS was in some ways a portfolio of technologies, uh, joint technologies, if you will. They had on the list, there's things like advanced uh, VLO or, or advanced very low observable, structural design with composites. 
And uh, even in 1994, uh, when that list was was kind of cultivated there, they had virtual and rapid prototyping, uh, paperless design. They listed uh, multifunction apertures, thrust vectoring, and the list goes on and on, which are really great things overall. But uh, one of the curious things they did was try to explore how to make the airframe more, ma- more maintainable with less experienced maintainers. And uh, everything was kind of all encompassed around how to make this more affordable overall and get the most bang for your buck. Uh, and then the idea was to mature the and exploit kind of high potential technologies before EMD or uh, service-driven engineering, manufacturing, and development. So now here we are, F-35, close to, if not the most expensive aircraft acquisition program in history, all kind of evolved out of a requirement to try to make uh, technology more affordable. So there's that. And uh, and, and the point I kind of want to make here is that the original F-35 program had these top-down directed requirements and a very systematic approach to it. It was noble. I think it was forward-thinking, and it actually made a lot of sense on paper when you looked at everything. Where the train kind of went off the tracks was the lack of competition drivers, and uh, you had service commonality being uh, one of them. Just to uh, to kind of balance this out, there were some minor instances of competition. Uh, one of them was in the fire control system. Uh, it originated out of this thing called MRFs, which was a multifunction integrated radio frequency system that the JFS uh, Joint Strike Fighter Program funded a five-year, $110 million program in 1996 uh, to Hughes, which would later become Raytheon and the Northrop Electronic Sensors and System Sector uh, for the actual radar itself. Uh, traditionally, uh, Raytheon was kind of the supplier to Boeing and then Northrop kind of the supplier to Lockheed for that. Uh, but they had these little tiny mini competitions for a specific technology in that program. So, so that was good. However, if you look at kind of like the overall timeline, so 1996, when they had that radar competition, look at what changed in the commercial sector. I mean, com- computing software technology changed dramatically. You have the cost of memory had been exponentially decreased thumb drives in the early 2000s cloud storage now processing power has increased exponentially uh, and then if we go back and look at the timeline overall of the airspace industry we had just talked about the first flight of the eagle in 1972 and then that was 48 years ago so if you take 48 years kind of step back in time to world war one we went from fabric wing biplanes to the mach 3 sr-71 and the primary driver of all of that was competition and a different structure to requirements and acquisition. Even with the best requirements, the F-35 program was still not as innovative or or competitive as it could or should be. And and I think right now is kind of evidence of that. So I hope that NGAT offers this pathway to change that. And focusing on iterative technology development and array of technologies, I think we can gain more competitors and more importantly, more second tier contractors and competitors who can break through um, entry barriers that we have, you know, entry barriers like the security empire uh, and the tyranny from uh, requirements and waterfall budget process. Uh, and then, and, and most of all, uh, kind of that tyranny from uh, big winner take all contracts uh, that span decades. And if you put all of that on the canvas of great power competition, I like to say that if we're not competitive internally, we won't be competitive externally. Uh, At the peak of innovation in the 40s and 50s, we had something like 15 primes, and now we are down to three. So are those three primes Lockheed, Boeing, and Kratos now, or is it, or is it still, or is it still Northrop? If we're talking about the broader, <laughs> right? I don't think Northrop has built a fighter since the YF-17, which then they don't really do anymore, right? Because that went to McDonald, then McDonald got bought up by Boeing, so that's all. The F-18 is now Boeing. Yeah, I think Northrop is uh, all in the uh, B-21, which I hear is really cool uh, overall. So yeah, that was my fear too. When I look at the industry, I kind of fear like it's going to go the way John Kenneth Galbraith says, which is like, you know, we have these monopoly organizations that they merge their structures with government and then they basically become indistinguishable. And then like what Roper was saying, Galbraith was actually saying in 1969, he was like, but he, he did, he wasn't saying it as a bad thing. He thought, we need government and industry in high tech areas to actually merge into the same thing and nationalize them. And he wasn't being ironic. He actually thought that was, you know, the way the world should work. But we're kind of, I think, more closer to the uh, competition camp than than the monopolization and nationalization camp. Right. Exactly. Exactly. We're talking about, you know, monolithic programs versus kind of disaggregated programs. And I liked what you're talking about there in terms of the synergy, because I think some of that tacit or, you know, undefined back and forth 
you know, experimentation, learning, trial and error, updating, and then doing something new and incorporating new things and always delivering better solutions. You know, I, I feel like that's where we want to go. And that's almost where we used to be back in the, you know, 40s and 50s. And then we went to the monolithic structures with McNamara and kind of the WizKids approach. But I want to read this quote here and get your reaction to it. It's from L.J. Atwood, who was the uh, president of North American Aviation at the time in 1959. And so this is like right at that transition point where, you know, the aviation industry seems to be becoming less innovative. And, you know, in the 1960s, basically the Air Force only did the F-111, right? There, there wasn't really too much going on in that once the controls came down. Here's his uh, testimony, quote, As defense technology continued to advance in succeeding years, it has become increasingly necessary to have early integration of each piece of equipment with all related equipment and the entire system. Therefore, it became desirable to develop groups of items together as integrated subsystems, which together make up what we call a weapon system. This trend was recently described by Ralph Cordonier, chairman of the board of General Electric Company, in these words. So this is a quote within a quote. Where the need was once for a large number of general purpose components and subsystems, the demand is increasingly for complete systems and even super systems. The need for components of very high reliability and advanced design remains, but they must more and more be planned in the context with the concept and design of the system which they are to be a part. Thus emerged the pattern of weapons systems development contracting. So I thought that was a, a, a good quote there from, you know, industry leaders. You know, they were kind of describing, we used to have this NGAD kind of proposition where we had all these subsystems that were independently being progressed and then the interactions between trying those things out and the air force back in the 50s they you know a lot of their fighters that they're building in that time they didn't actually use the same airframe or the same engine or the same avionics as planned they were they were able to pivot and do new things but that kind of went away in the 60s and then increasingly in the 70s to what we know today so do you have any uh quick takes on 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 that quote that's an interesting quote. First, uh, North American was a great company. Uh, they had a P-51, F-86. Uh, both were amazing aircraft. And there's no doubt that the weapon system approach, especially when it spans over decades, is a huge hang-up to innovation and progress. I think the counter-argument there would be that the more separate and different platforms you have, the more uh, logistics problems you might run into. Everything from training standardization for maintenance and operators to just, you know, parts management. And if you're talking about projecting combat force over big distances, uh, say the Pacific, uh, it's difficult to do well if you have a million different types of parts and manpower specialties. I think the devil's advocates would also point out a lack of ability to be tactically standardized pertaining to what kind of capabilities that you had at the time and then how you were able to develop and sustain those capabilities and then integrate that into a plan with other players and and for them to know what you're capable of, et cetera. Now, having said all that, I think that there might be an answer to that all. Yeah, I think that's an important kind of nuance. Well, I guess the the issue here is that when you have the, the whole entire ecosystem of subsystem developments going on and component developments, they don't all need to be in production and sustainment at the exact same time. Many of them might just be carried through in terms of development as an option for fully proving out and forming future developments. And it's one of the ideas is it's okay to develop something and not put it into production necessarily because... The whole point of R&D is the search of the unknown, the trying things out and learning, whereas we tend to take most of that chunks of money and say, this is for a dedicated system that will not fail, and it will go into production, and it will go into sustainment. So the future looks very fixed, and we don't think diversity is a good idea because everything looks programmed out, and there's so much room for these systems, and we got to pick. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. There's a uh, pretty good book that came out not too long ago from a really successful venture capitalist. And you know, the book was called Unscaled by Hemant Tanasia. The idea was that modern technology advantage is going to go away from economies of scale and toward economies of unscale. Obviously, economies of scale tend to produce a lot of the same thing. And the products may not be the most efficient 
or they may not be the most appropriate for whatever scenario that you have or, or whatever market that there is. One of the things that he argues is that things like uh, artificial intelligence or advanced manufacturing, and then uh, you have communication that can move large amounts of data are trending everything towards capturing specialty or specialty markets and being able to do so fairly affordably, something that he calls unscaled. So here we are with companies like Uber, uh, Airbnb, Warby Parker, uh, Stripe, the list goes on. And if you think about that principle, how it can be applied to defense, I think uh, it'll be revolutionary. I mean, I could be completely off the deep end here, but I think that there's a way to do self-contained logistics or, or a way to get to that point uh, even and kind of imagine being able to do your own development ops or DevOps, I guess, in a deployed location for weapons or uh, you know other types of systems or sensors or anything like that uh, that you need. So you might have a, a need for a specific approach. And you're able to develop it digitally, uh, maybe test a weapon against an aircraft aerodynamics digitally as well without having to test fly, but, but kind of test it around the parameters and then manufacture it or create it organically. And for hardware tasks, it might be a little bit harder, uh, but I think for software, there is a lot there and really, really doable and you can customize it. And if we're starting to trend toward uh, going more towards software answers, I think that self-contained logistics could be, uh, with this kind of unscaled principle, could be really something for the military. Does that go against what you were saying just a little bit earlier, that logistics is hard? And, you know, I mean, that's definitely true. Logistics is hard. And the more stuff you have or the more diversity of parts or whatever, you know, the more burden that's going to be. But shouldn't the department be potentially leaning in on, you know, unscaling? potentially through 3D printing and other and other techniques that might be able to reduce transaction costs. Yeah, absolutely. Especially when it comes to like software development and all that. Um, I think that, that there's a huge advantage there. Additive printing or additive manufacturing rather, I think is there's a couple gotchas with that, uh, as you know. However, you're absolutely right. And I think that that is probably going to be the future. Hopefully it is the future. And it is maybe even what the NGAD was, you know, with the, those little tidbits of information that everybody got online about how it uh, utilized different manufacturing processes. I mean, it could be it could be a lot more of that, you know. Yeah, there's a bunch of companies now, you know, 3D printing like rockets. <laughs> you wouldn't have expected that just a few years ago, right? But maybe it'll surprise us how, how much can be done with that. Maybe it'll surprise us like, you know, maybe AI did in the years past where they had all this promise, but then it didn't really deliver. But I want to get to, since we're, since we're on the topic of logistics, I want to get to something that, you know, an interesting concept that you had and you kind of brought up very briefly, which is the idea of like self-contained logistics. When you think about, you know, requirements in the Pacific and operating out there, there, there needs to be a need for greater kind of range and able to like bring all of your stuff with you and be able to be self-contained. So what were you thinking there? Uh, yeah, I mean, that would be anybody's dream, right? To, uh, what do they say? Amateurs talk tactics, professionals talk logistics. Yeah, I think that being able to minimize your logistical footprint overall, I mean, it, it, it's a huge advantage as far as mitigating your vulnerability uh, to, you know, enemy targeting. And in warfare, you have lines of communication. Those lines of communication can be cut off pretty easily. And I think that if you look at, you know, big operations, uh, one of the uh, one of the ways the U.S. conducts operations is usually uh, projecting power or projecting force, you know, overseas or, or wherever it is. Um, I think that if you're going to do that and you can do it self-sustained with a relatively low logistics footprint, and then you can kind of customize everything on the fly and adapt it to your mission set, you can ultimately get into that, you know, like kind of like Boyd's OODA loop with the, uh, with the enemy, the ability to get inside of that to his decision-making cycle. And then ultimately win. that's my opinion, at least, I, I, I think that that, I, I'm trying to think of a better way to say that, but I think that's pretty much hard <laughs> to think about it for a little bit longer, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you, you brought up John Boyd. And of course, the F-15 in many respects is due to John Boyd and his efforts in the 1960s with the FXX, or was it just the FX, the FX program, right? But one of his big lessons for me is moving away from his early years where he's focusing on 
you know, the, the decision cycle, the OODA loop and, you know, destruction and creation, he kind of evolved his thinking to, you know, like the mental and moral aspects of warfare. And I think this is something that you've expressed a few times. Your, I would say your interest in understanding the, the mental and moral aspects to warfare as opposed to just the kinetic effects that we usually discuss when we're all talking about weapon systems and all of that. So can you just talk about what was your logic there for thinking about the mental moral world? And, and what do you think of at what is that? What is the mental moral world? Well, it's a very complicated question with a very complicated answer. So warfare is fundamentally social. You know, it's the interaction of people, just like we talked about, of policy, of quite a lot. And since we're interacting with people, I think that there are some nuances there that you have to consider. There are uh, unique positions that you can find yourself in in warfare that I don't think that you can predict and don't follow a linear pattern of events, if that makes sense. If you look at even some of the situations that we're in right now, some of the war zones out there, like Syria is super gray. There's a lot going on there. I think that that's going to be the general trend in warfare uh, overall. Is it like, tell me if this is true, but like when you guys do war games or think about how you're going to be doing engagements, usually it's like, well, there's a, an enemy fighter approaching and we're scrambling to go intercept him. Or like there's troops on the ground that are, you know, like these very kind of set piece, you know, kinetic things as opposed to what might happen in a proxy country where there's, it's hard to determine who's who and maybe cyber attacks and all these other things that could be, you know, starting a war, escalating a war all that kind of stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's a great point. Uh, warfare is never as clear-cut and linear as the defense world would make you believe. And, and I think it's realistic to think that future warfare, like modern warfare is now, won't be so much about total annihilation as it is about negotiating a peace or operating in an area that requires just complicated human decision-making. You may have a, a huge flow of refugees. You may have intermingled non-state actors. You could have state actors there. You could have different strategic audiences on on different types of perception levels and different escalation pathways when it comes to that. And for what we normally do in the, you know, operational in the fighter world, uh, we train to this sort of bipolar conflict where we have two sides, you know, we have red versus blue, the bad guys versus the good guys. And that might not always be the case. I think the general trend is going to be, you know, there might be four, maybe five different of these strategic audiences there, some with good intentions, some, you know, may not necessarily be hostile, but maybe they're right on the verge and managing that escalation and, and ultimately achieving what you want to do, I think is, is really uh, quite complicated. And you may think of that as a kind of high level decision-making, but I think that a lot of that happens can happen on the tactical level. And you see a lot of the just incidents that happen and, little bits of escalation here and there, and, and they all really begin at the tactical level. So I think that that's kind of important when you consider the moral or more the the human part of warfare when it comes to that. I know that there's a pretty big argument out there that it's silly to put a fighter designed to be AI into a fighter that's designed to be manned. And then, I don't know, you, why not just, you know, take the man out of it and and you can create all this, you know, good performance value. And, and there's something to be said for that, for sure. You can't get performance that you can with a human in there. But in warfare, there's this big component of analyzing data in context and making decisions based off of context that is a lot easier said than done. And not every situation's the same. And sometimes it kind of defies, some of your decision-making defies logic. And you have like, anyways... I don't know if that explains it all. No, I mean that's a very—it's a really complicated, you know, thought process that you're trying to express there that I can't really articulate very well myself, right? <laughs> um, I mean, context is king, and AI doesn't know what things are in the real world, right? They just know some patterns, and maybe maybe that's all we know too. Maybe all we know is patterns, but you know, I like to think that that we have, you know, that thing that is kind of context in human and. You know, when I think about, you know, well, how will things escalate with China or Russia as our near peer competitors? And it's like, it's doubtful that they're just going to come on in a conventional way, right? Like we already see them expressing themselves through other nations, third parties, economic dominance, you know, information dominance and not just kinetic dominance. And how do we respond to that? And how do we articulate ourselves 
to the local population and affect our ability to make decisions in those contexts, you know, that's a huge element. And of course, as I babble here, I'm, I'm kind of skipping around the point, but the point is, I, I think you expressed it pretty well. So I want to, I want to jump back over to the fighter world because, you know, you're an F-15 pilot and now we, we're starting to see the F-15 EX, which uh, is, is starting to come out. Do you have any thoughts about that? You, you were saying, you know, the F-15 for, made its first flight in 1972. It's the same basic platform, maybe rebuilt a little bit, but it's adding new capabilities onto that platform. Do you think that's kind of a good way to go or what are your thoughts there? That is a very, it's a, a complicated question. So me as an F-15E pilot, you know, of course I want to fly it. I think it'd be great to fly. However, I'm not 100% sure that it's the answer um, that everybody is uh, is kind of making it out to be, especially in our, our particular community. It's kind of interesting. I think, you know, if you look at the C model, the F-15C model, uh, they just put a really, uh, really recent, and really expensive radar upgrade in it that it has this amazing radar we got we have an amazing radar as well Um, but the f-15c you know slash d fleet is like literally falling apart right now and they're well beyond their usable airframe life they had you know decades of just high g maneuvering uh, and then reenacting the golf war and training uh, have taken their toll on all the different structural components of that aircraft so Boeing's big deal, right? They said, here's a ready now solution. You don't have to go through the developmental or, or you don't have to go through the prototyping phase or any of that. Like we have it, we can produce it. Here you go. Just give us the check and, and we'll be good to go for that. They were capitalizing on existing tooling. Uh, and of course, Air Force's uh, frustrations with uh, the F-35 program. But having said all that, we kind of get back to that conversation of the F-15EX, I don't really feel represents the leap in technology or capability that we need right now. And one of my concerns is that uh, if we buy it, we'll be in that same process uh, that we were kind of talking about earlier, where that contract will span decades and then there won't be, you know, will there be competition after the EX or will that, you know, EX sort of sort of take up room when you could be having a, a competition for something else. Now, the entrance of the NGAD, of course, this changes everything. I think if it's a real thing, you know, we're able to actually, you know, get it produced. But I don't know if that answers your question at all. And I was kind of d- dancing around a lot there. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think I think that was great. Um, you know, I think you brought up the point that it's important few years, the Air Force might potentially have three fighter programs in production, right? And that might leave itself with a problem in terms of budget allocation. And if reduced rates of production will force one to spiral into cancellation, potentially, you know, so that's a, that's a longstanding problem. It's not a longstanding problem. I mean, that's just a, a reality of having multiple systems coming into development and then production. And, you know, you talked about unscaled, potentially there will be some benefits from that in the future, but do you think one of them is going to have to bow out or, you know, is there going to be room for all of them? Even if we have a fighter bow out, I don't think that that is necessarily a bad thing overall. And and I I think that that might be the case. I don't know. Um, One good thing I will say about the F-15 series and the F-15 EX. And, and one of the reasons why it's actually been successful is because you can pretty much put anything you want on that airplane as far as weapons go and as far as sensors go. And it is like the platform to do anything that you want to do with. So if you're talking about iterative technology developed for maybe like some cool sensors or cool weapons or something like that, then you can put those on the EX and demonstrate that. And you can do it pretty quick the way that they've developed some technology within that to be able to, to attach it. There's a little bit more on that thread. However, I think that we'll have to see really what this NGAD comes out as and like what it represents and what kind of technology that it represents. There's, you know, the innovator's dilemma, uh, right the market doesn't really know what it wants until it actually you know gets it um so if you survey the market right you you may not get a consensus to what the next cool thing is until the market actually gets it so i think that could be kind of the potential with the NGAT is we'll have to see what it actually really is before making an accurate assessment on where fighter acquisitions are going to go 
I love the Clayton Christensen reference there because one of the issues is always like, you know, when you go to the new paradigm, right, it often starts off at a worse, you know, performance value compared to the legacy sustaining system. And potentially in the Department of Defense, that could, you know, we could see a lot of knocks against the NGAD demonstrator, even if it puts it on like a trajectory to grow faster, do do better things in the future that can really revolutionize things. But that, that seems to be one of the issues in the Department of Defense because we always want, well, it's going to be the next thing. So it has to be better on every front, right? And if it's not better on every front, then it's not worth it. But sometimes, you know, you, you got to take these leaps and, you know, potentially the NGAD isn't that, right? It's kind of like a high maturity thing, but it could, you know, prove its worth. And we'll, this whole situation actually reminds me a little bit of the end of the the 60s and the early 70s because it's like we have this acquisition reform going on we're, we're trying to go towards prototyping you know agile processes and then we have a legacy system that's had a lot of problems that was a joint system right the f111 right then we we get a new system kind of coming back in it's the f15 both times <laughs> right the f15 and so that that created some budget pressure and then there was a third one um that kind of got its start you know very i would say outside the system the the lightweight fire, the F-16, and then also the NGAD. Both of those are pretty irregular demonstrators that have started and potentially could take over or, do, or like become a mainstay in the future. So you have any reactions to what I was just saying there? Yeah, you're exactly right. I, it's funny because in aviation, there, there are a lot of things that come out of just kind of randomness, like non-requirement sort of stuff or like vague requirements or, you know, kind of sideshow uh, sort of things. You know, the F-117, like we talked about earlier, was one of those things uh, that just kind of came up and then, you know, Skunk Works ran with it and then it came, you know, it, it led on to a lot of very successful technology, uh, which I thought, you know, was really cool. I think that one of the cool things maybe about the NGAD, by doing this like portfolio of technologies, I think that you have a kind of like a natural shield from what big programs so big, big programs are sort of, they can be very vulnerable or they can be very well protected, you know, depending on how you look at it. Uh, and I think that going to this like smaller technology development, uh, if you can use it on multiple airframes, the chance of you getting it shot down from a budgeting process is probably pretty low. I, I feel like, you know, maybe it, it could be its lifeline to, you know, certainly get it started to where we can then start a competitive structure then start doing like real iterative technology, get more competitors, et cetera, and then kind of like start the train going, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, I'm glad you, you brought it back to the requirements process because, you know, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, just skipping the, the requirements process through the Joint Capabilities Integration and Development System, JSIDs. And I'd, I'd just like to get your perspective as an aviator. You know, how do you actually interact with the weapons requirements and development process? Do you see like how, how you as an aviator kind of fit into that puzzle or is it a little bit opaque for you? So I don't really fit into it at all. Uh, so <laughs> there's pretty, nobody cares really from my end, at least we, we just kind of, we're, we're kind of like the end user kind of use the system at least my specific case. That's what, that's what we do. Occasionally you'll have some of the contractors that'll come out. Hey, how do you like this? You know, make sure you tell me it's good. You know, all that sort of stuff. But, it, but but there are some of the community that goes on, you know, goes on down to Eglin or countless other locations, and you're able to get in on the developmental process as well as, um, you know, satisfying requirements and, and all that sort of stuff. From what I've heard, at least the, you know, making sure that all the containers are checked for requirements is a uh, kind of an eye gouging process. Uh, and is not particularly uh, glamorous work. So, so there's that. So maybe it's a blessing in disguise. But I, I don't really have much say on you know how the fighter gets shaped. We have some frustrations with things from time to time. We try to funnel those frustrations up, uh, and then sometimes we get traction on it. Sometimes we just get a shrug and they say, "Well, uh, it could be better. We just need another line in the budget." You know, and that's kind of the default answer that we usually get of, hey, why are we using this radar warning receiver from the 1980s against modern threats? And the answer is, well, we would love to give you something better, but we just don't have the money for it. You know, that's that's kind of the standard um, standard answer, at least for us. Yeah, and that's why I like to focus my attention on the very unsexy but very important budget process. Can you 
give us an indication of, you know, how many hours a month do you say you're actually in the air, you know, training and op- or operating an F-15? So usually they uh, they try maybe about 20 hours or so to get in the air. It, it, it kind of depends. It ebbs and flows as far as weather it could be a factor, you know, maintenance could be a factor with the jets. There could be a lot of other nuances with scheduling and stuff, but I would say average. You're probably looking at maybe 250 hours a year probably is pretty accurate, I think, number, depending on where you're at. Um, When I was in England, I think after three years, I came away with like 1,100 hours, so maybe a decent amount more. So it kind of ebbs and flows. Uh, One year it'll be high, one year it'll be lower, depending on what you're doing. I wonder, like, so with that experience in, in these jets, well, actually, <laughs> when you're talking about, you know, having some of those problems of, you know, 1980s technology and the, the issue is getting the budget, have you ever been trained on operational needs statements and, and how to submit those and try, as a pathway to the commander and then the budget? Uh, no, no, <laughs> I haven't. Um, I, I have, I can't say that I have. Uh, there's a certain Air Force JAG colonel who, who, uh, likes to bang the drum and <laughs> on that. And, and I think that's probably an important thing. So I'm glad he's out there, you know, talking about operational needs statements as a way to kind of get a requirement in. Maybe, maybe you'll be, <laughs> you know, gone by the time it comes back to you. Yeah. It, it's, it's funny you say that. Cause I was just talking to somebody the other day and he asked me, uh, somebody in Washington, and asked me if I had ever uh, heard of that and how if I knew that process. I was like, uh, nope. <laughs> and he's like, we need more people, you know, more operational people that really understand this. And uh, okay, you know, no, no problem there. I'm, I'm, I'm happy to learn it. I'm glad that at least it's coming, coming through. But you know, do you think that you know some of the military aviators, potentially like yourself, are part of a roadblock to change? Like, if there was, you know, some change, they would actually push back on it, especially if you, when you get to the higher ranks that, you know, you're comfortable with, with this and you understand it and you might want to push back. How much do you think operators can propel it forward versus hold things back? And, you know, maybe what kind of context allows for one versus the other? Absolutely. We definitely get in our own way. I think that that's true for almost everyone in the military. We're used to this rigid, predictable framework of operations uh, day to day. And there seems to be, in my opinion, two types of people in the fighter community. Uh, there's those that want to learn codified, vetted information, be able to predictably execute, and then uh, debrief to those parameters. Uh, they want to use the information available, stay within the predictive space, do their job, and then go home. Uh, and then that's usually how you get promotion in a bureaucratic environment. You learn the information the bureaucracy wants you to know. You learn the behaviors it rewards and the behaviors it punishes. Then you learn how to navigate those. Uh, the other type of person is one who kind of explores the space outside of the unknown. In some cases, that space may be full of risk, uh, you know, with uh, with little to no benefit. However, those are usually the innovators. And I think George Bernard Shaw had a, had a good quote. He said, the reasonable man adapts himself to the world. The unreasonable one persists in trying to adapt the world to himself. Therefore, all progress depends on the unreasonable man. Uh, I thought that was pretty interesting. I think we need both of those types and maintaining that balance is key. The other part of that is there's a lot of information that uh, is because it's vetted, uh, you know it's going to work and um, that's how you succeed, I guess, in in tactical aviation uh, for the most part. I think I heard a story of uh, Francis Gabreski, one of the greatest aces of World War II. Uh, and when he got to the F-86, he had a new gun sight, and it was supposed to help him target you know, enemy aircraft easier. And uh, he, he, uh, he said he hated it, and he would just prefer to put a piece of bubble gum on the, wind, on the uh, windscreen there uh, in his cockpit and then use that as kind of his, uh, his pipper for the gun. Uh, and he hated, the, hated the, uh, the gun sight. And he was mad that he had... Uh, for the F-86 in Korea, they had 250 pages of technical manuals that they had to know. Uh, and he was he was kind of mad coming from the Mustang. And fast forward to today, there's something like 8,000 pages that, you know, one each standard F-15 pilot has to know about his jet and his weapons. So there, there's that, um, there's that natural just, you know, hey, I've been doing this well before and it's been working for me. I don't really want to change it, right? If it's not broke, don't fix it. However, you know, I'll say that and 
And if you look at the air war in Vietnam, there's a really great book out there called Clashes by Marshall Michael. And he goes through kind of the tactical history of Vietnam and, and kind of what new things came up in like the history of AWACS and how we had, you know, the, the IFF equipment and what kind of formations we used. And he gets into a lot of details in there and it's really great. And one of the things that he brings home was that some of the losses in Vietnam were actually due to guys using tactics, formation tactics from Korea. And it worked great in Korea. But when they got to Vietnam and they tried to use it with the F-4, it failed miserably. Uh, and they were trying to fly close in formation while they were dogfighting and some other stuff that was kind of remnants of World War II in Korea. Uh, and a lot of guys lost their lives from that uh, failure to change and go forward. Also, you know, Vietnam is full of stories of using, uh, you know, crappy missiles that can't do their job and, and, and taking bad shots and stuff. And everybody wanted to go back to the gun. You know, so there's that too. So I guess there's a little bit of uh, a little bit of truth to both sides of the story there. But to answer your original question, yeah, I think there are there are some roadblocks there, but I think there's I think we're hopeful uh, in the fighter community, especially. I feel like we are moving the ball forward slowly but surely. There's a lot of really great thinkers out there. There's a lot of guys who are very creative, coming up with new solutions for problems, not afraid to challenge old assumptions and really look at things very objectively rather than uh, nostalgically. So a strange thing about those tactics, uh, you know who had his name all over those bad tactics? It was John Boyd as well. Yeah, he wrote that, that. That was like his thesis, right, or something like that in 1960. Or... Yeah, even before that, if you, if you really dig into the history books and see who was writing the fighter tactics at the time uh, out at Nellis, uh, John Boyd's name was on there. Uh, some of the bad tactics were actually... Uh, were actually taken to Vietnam uh, from there. And it, it was just misapplied from out of context. And eventually they got it right. But uh, but it just go to sh it goes to show that context is really everything and that uh, tactics are uh, a game of constant evolution as well as technology. But, uh, but tactics evolve as well. They have to change or you die. It was striking to me from the Vietnam War, like how much fighter pilot tactics and training actually mattered because... Previous podcast guest Mark Mandelis had a really nice interview with Frank Alt, who who was a captain at the time that helped stand up the Top Gun, and they were talking about just like the exchange ratios before and then after they kind of started going through these programs, and it was something like two to one, and then it switched over to like eight to one or more. So it's just like this incredible improvement in the exchange just from like you know good training. Yeah, no, you're right. It was actually from um, a lot of, at least on the Air Force side, I can't really speak intelligently to the Navy side, um, but from the Air Force side, it was actually the introduction of realistic combat where guys were getting trained and, and then actually winning. And prior to, so back in the 50s and early 60s, uh, the Strategic Air, Air Command mentality, uh, it's kind, it kind of interesting because it was the no-fail nuclear mission uh, methodology at the time, you know, zero failures. And they were a very safety conscious culture. Uh, and eventually, this kind of permeated down to air to air tactics where guys couldn't really train because it was potentially dangerous, or they couldn't train in low levels because they were potentially dangerous. And they couldn't do they had a bunch of rules and, and all this sort of stuff. And granted, there is always a place for rules. Um, however, it was taking away from realistic training, which was actually one of the reasons why Red Flag was stood up um, to offer a realistic training environment. And they found that realistic training was really the key to survival. Who would have thought, right? <laughs> but so, so that's it, it. It's it's very interesting. And in Vietnam, there's a ton. There's obviously a lot of a lot written on it. But that culture change from being able to take risks and getting feedback and being able to do things realistically is interesting how that worked out in the air to air world. And uh, it kind of works out in the business world as well, you know, being able to take risks and be able to uh, and be able to fail and not necessarily, you know, go to a zero failure mindset. Yeah, definitely with you. Just thinking about operational concepts, how much has that really changed for you as a fighter pilot, do you think, since like the Persian Gulf time? So for me, yeah, it's, I think it's a little bit frustrating. I do think that we are mostly reenacting the Gulf War a lot. 
and because it worked for us. Um, I think we're slowly changing that now and we're getting to all kinds of different types of operational concepts. And, and I think that's great. And I think there are some new technologies being developed and hopefully there's some new technologies fielded that will offer some different pathways for tactical change. And I hate to say that's required because usually in the Air Force, when we think of innovation, everybody thinks technology innovation, right? It's always something, uh, some gadget that can be innovated. And sometimes tactical innovation isn't really, isn't really a thing. Usually it's a lot of doing the same or finding just slightly newer ways to do the same exact thing. And I think one of your guests on here earlier said something about he wishes there was a statue in Beijing, a 30-foot statue in Beijing to a Chinese girl that came up with the idea to put islands in the middle of the ocean. That's true innovation. And uh, I remember listening to that and I was like, man, that is spot on. That is real innovation. That guy... That, that's where it's at. That's crazy innovation. Uh, that's kind of cool. You know, here we are, you know, every base has their own little innovation lab and usually it consists of, you know, VR headsets or, you know, some sort of thing like that. But this Chinese guy was really innovating, you know, let's build some islands in the middle of the ocean. <laughs> so what, what is your view of uh, the AFWORK spark cells? Is that what you're, what you're referring to? Oh, no. I mean, those are good, I guess. I I just feel like every base has their own little innovation theater. Yes. (laughs) I I think that's, you know, some of the fear that a lot of people have, whether the whole thing is turning into innovation theater, whether it's actually creating new operational concepts to go along with those new technologies. And it's not easy. And when you say like you have 8,000 pages of technical manuals that you have to know and you have to do all these things, it's hard for you probably as an airman to kind of multitask and i guess if unless you're one of those people as you said before that's like really you know devoting yourself to innovation all that and you're spending you know 15 hours a day it's going to be really hard to contribute to both at the same time even though that's kind of what's needed right yeah so that's actually a really good point and getting back to that conversation about roadblocks to change when you're responsible for knowing 8000 pages of stuff your appetite for, you know, wanting to say, okay, give me the next airplane and let me learn the next 8,000 pages of stuff, you know, is pretty low, (laughs) I think. So you'll see guys, you know, may go from, you know, the F-15 or the F-16 to the F-35, but usually it kind of takes a lot to move from airframe to airframe just because of all the corporate knowledge that you've learned. And there's so much stuff that you, you really just, you know, you don't have it in you to, to go learn another airplane, uh, if you will. So I, I think that, that, you know, getting back to your point, that, that is definitely a roadblock to change, um, whether self-inflicted or not. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Is there also like some, I guess, career aspects to that? It's like if you just kind of master your craft and do what you, you need to do within that context, you know, you can make the next rank and you can kind of move on, but like, it's kind of like uncharted waters if you go off and do that kind of stuff. Yeah, some sometimes I, I would say that overall, actually, the general trend in the Air Force is to I think that they actually do a pretty decent job right now of just kind of evaluating who you are as a person and trying to go in that direction and, and say that, hey, you know, if you want a decent career, we're kind of going to value all the aspects of you. Now, there are some golden paths, you know, and all that sort of stuff. But I, I think it's a general trend, though. They, they've been pretty good about trying at least to put the right people in the right spots doesn't always happen but you know overall so great i'd like to give you just a chance here to uh leave us with any last thoughts that you might have i think uh, overall a lot of this uh, ai talk and the ngad talk i think represents some really cool stuff on the horizon and i really hope i really hope that's the case i hope we're ready to reinvigorate the military aviation industry with competition. I'm a huge fan of Will Roper or Dr. Roper from what he's doing. Not everybody agrees with him and, you know, I'm sure he runs into opposition and I'm sure he will run into massive opposition, but I think everybody deep down inside probably admires him fighting to make stuff happen and say, Hey, listen, like, let's change our process. Let's change what we can, you know, and do the most that we can. So that NGAD, I think is awesome. Uh, I really hope that it 
it turns into something great. Same thing with the DARPA AI, the alpha dogfight. Most fighter pilots that you'll meet will probably roll their eyes maybe at the thought of, you know, automating, <laughs> taking their jobs away, uh, if you will. But uh, I, I think it's a, it, it's kind of a good direction. There's a lot of technology. There's a lot of room for technology to grow. I am not of the camp that we have found all of the technology and we can't really develop that much. Uh, and surprisingly, there are some people who think that way. But so overall, I think this is a really good thing. And I think the fact that we're talking about this is also a really good thing. Um, I know that your podcast is directed a little bit more towards the acquisition system and how to better improve that, if you will, and how it works. And so I feel like this is kind of hopefully the representation of good things to come. Ryan Fischel, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Thanks. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.